Brian Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, joined uh, by Dr. Tori McGowan. Um, big, a lot of courses. You're, you're busy. Um, a lot of different courses on uh, uh, mass casualty, disaster, military uh, aspects of things. And you know, one of the very interesting, more interesting topics that I saw that I definitely wanted to hit on was uh, how the military has shaped a lot of emergency medicine, and then we'll roll into also some mass casualty stuff as well. Uh, but that's a very interesting um, how, um, it, it actually it's almost across the board, uh, military is an innovator of technology advancements and things like that for, for wartime that then translated into the civilian type setting. But for the aspect of healthcare, it's, it's very true because of the advancements and things that have come from uh, the front lines and the battle lines to our emergency department. So uh, first, this is your first time on the podcast with us. It is. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in all this. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to be here. I am a veteran. I spent 21 years in the military, and I'm still in the Oregon Air National Guard, so I spent 12 years active duty. I spent six months in Iraq and six months in Afghanistan, and during that time certainly had a lot of opportunities to do mass casualty events and see how the military does trauma. And that's what drove a lot of my speaking and a lot of my opportunities with that. I now serve in the Oregon Air National Guard as a surf p emergency physician, so that's a C. Bernie Enhanced Force Response Package. We are a, an all-hazards disaster response unit that has special training in C. Bernie response. So if there's any type of a radiologic spill or a biological incident or a chemical spill, my unit goes out and provides search and extraction, triage, decontamination, and patient stabilization for transport. And I'm the emergency physician, so I run the immediate stabilization tent for the patients that come in off that. You know, you mentioned one of the big topics is um, the discussions of how uh, battlefield medicine is, is shaping emergency medicine. Give us some of the thoughts and ideas, things that I'm doing on a daily basis in my community hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, um, that found its birth in, in, on the battlefield. That answer is so hard to give because almost everything we do in emergency medicine has been at least shaped, if not started, on the battlefield. Nowhere else do we injure people on a grand scale like we do in war, and mm -hmm. that allows us to make tremendous advances in that. Probably one of the very first things is the development of an organized EMS system. That was developed uh, by Napoleon surgeon Dominique Jean Leray. He created the very first emergency medicine evacuation system at the Battle of Metz in 1793. He created his ambulances volantes, which were the flying ambulances that were modeled after how they moved artillery around on the battlefield. And so he took that idea of a horse-drawn wagon that was then created to move patients rather than just however you could get somebody off the battlefield. That was translated about 100 years later into the American Civil War by Jonathan Letterman, who was the father of military emergency, or excuse me, military medicine in general. And those ideas have persisted in how do we move patients and how do we get them off the battlefield and move them through. That has now translated even further to the point where in the military we now have emergency physicians that are on helicopters that will go to the point of injury, pick up patients, do damage control resuscitation like Reboa downrange, bring them back to surgical control. They're stabilized with damage control surgery. That's another 
a concept that started at the Battle of Mogadishu back in 1993. Damage control surgery was first described by an army surgeon. Then those patients receive critical care en route all the way from the battlefield, wherever that is, in Afghanistan, Africa, Iraq, back home, to, back to Germany, and all the way back home to the United States. And what we have seen with how quickly we move our patients, back in World War II, if you were injured in war, your combat mortality rate, so if you got an injury, 30% of those patients would die. World, excuse me, that was World War II. Korea, Vietnam, even up until the Persian Gulf, we still saw combat mortality rates of 24 to 26%. So one out of four people would still die on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan, partly because of how fast we move patients, that's less than 10%. That is the lowest combat mortality rate of any war in history. And we bring that back, that translates into our civilian uh, rotary wing evacuation. How do our civilian EMS systems work? That is the type of thing that was honed in the military. Another great example is ultrasound. We all have portable ultrasounds in our emergency department. That technology was actually developed for the military. The DARPA, which was the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, they're the ones that when the military needs something and they put out a, put out a call for, could you make me this widget? That grant was originally awarded to Sonosite, and mm -hmm. so the Sonosite 180, that old machine that we probably remember training on, that was developed for the military, and that was the very first one to go out in response to a military request for a portable ultrasound. And ultrasound is in every one of our ERs now. Started in the military. It is amazing, the advancement with the port operating bases and, you know, the way we have that tiered care approach in battle. I mean, I, I remember going to um, the military... History Museum in um, Silver Springs, Maryland, mm -hmm. just out of Washington, D.C. I mean, it's fantastic. If you've never gone, fantastic museum within a couple few blocks of the metro station, um, and you get you head in there, and they have um, just this incredible. There's a piece of the floor um, from um, from really the trauma resuscitation room in Iraq because. Once somebody made it there, it was almost a guaranteed survival at that point. I mean, the numbers were incredible, and I, and I can't remember it off the top of my bed whether it's 95 or 98 percent, but it was it was about as close to 100 percent as you can get if you made it there. Yep. The skills and the things that that happened there from the folks you were going to make it home. That's correct. Trauma Bay Two is where it was. That was our busiest trauma bay in Iraq. I was actually there in 2009, so shortly after the tents were taken down and we moved into a hardened facility. So that floor was cut out in 2007 and moved to the National Museum of Health and Medicine. And while we were there during my time, our survival was 98.7%. If you made it to my emergency department, to my trauma bay with a pulse, you had a 98.7% chance of making it home. Yeah. And there is nowhere else that boasts that. No, and it, it was amazing. I mean, the, the things that happened on the at the time, at the point of injury, uh, to the forward operating bases, to then moving further back, the tiered system eventually into Germany and then uh, back across here to the United States. Uh, it really was amazing, the advancements. What are some of the other things that, um, that we see? I mean, really, the military is what brought back, uh, brought back tourniquets for us. They allowed it to come in. I.O., another thing that has really been something used a lot uh, from the military standpoint, of course, the, the military's got the, the talon, uh, <laughs> whereas uh, we're, we still have uh, the, the humeral and the tibial 
yep. type approaches uh, for the most part. There's yep. other things as well. What are some of the other things that, that people were using on a daily or, or not too infrequently basis that we take for granted but found its birth on the battlefield? Absolutely. Tourniquets are probably our biggest success story in the history of tourniquets. Uh, is incredibly long. They were very first used on the battlefield by Alexander the Great's army to treat snake bite. We didn't understand how they worked uh, much la- until much later on the battlefield, uh, but now the latest numbers are if you had a tourniquet placed for an isolated extremity hemorrhage, your survival was 87%. If you did not have a tourniquet placed, your survival is 0%. We have definitively shown that those tourniquets save lives. The very first fatality of the Afghanistan war was a sergeant named Sergeant First Class Nathan Chapman. He died January 4th of 2002 of an isolated gunshot wound to his femoral artery. And he bled out because he didn't have a tourniquet on while he was being evacuated. And we have learned those lessons and we have one of, probably one of the biggest things that's kind of a hidden story in this is the Joint Theater Trauma Registry. Actually, I think they've changed the name now to the DOD uh, Trauma Registry. Every single patient that comes in that's either a battle injury or a non-battle injury. So when you go to war, you still have things like car accidents and you mm-hmm. fall off ladders. And so we capture all of those things, not just, not just battle wounds, but non-battle injuries as well. All of that data is collected by researchers and goes into a database. And so all of the studies that come from, that were used to look at transfusion ratios, like the prompt trial and the proper trial, those were based on data that was coming out of the Joint Theater Trauma Registry, where we were starting to understand that people were hemorrhaging because of how we were transfusing them. And that data was then used on the civilian side to drive this idea of whole blood or a transfusion ratio that approximates whole blood better, which, oh, by the way, is how we did it back in World War I, because we just transfused whole blood. Mm-hmm. We, didn't have, we didn't actually even have the ability to fractionate at that time. And so a lot of this is just the concepts of how do we, not just the toys that we have, but how do we approach severely injured patients? And the idea of damage control resuscitation, like we talked about, permissive hypotension, The concepts of the lethal triad of acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy, that all drove out of the early publications in like 2003, 2004, coming out of that Joint Theater Trauma Registry. And that's actually a database that's available for civilian researchers as well, that they can data mine all of that information. And we collect everything from what type of a pre-hospital airway did you get to how many tourniquets did you get, what type of fluid did you get during your resuscitation, how long was your tourniquet in place, all of that is is collected in this tremendous database of 18 years worth of trauma information that we've had out of these last two wars. Yeah, it's, it's many times when you talk about war, you talk about all the nasty and terrible things that happen in conflict, but it really is the advancements in technologies, um, you know, is amazing and, and really does kick us forward. And I think healthcare has really started to own that you know, over the last couple of decades with things that we have brought out of um, the experiences very much in the Middle East, um, but other, other theaters as well. Now, you have taken that, you've taken that next step. You mentioned you're still active, um, but you've now transitioned, translated a lot of that into disaster discussions. One of your talks here, break, break glass in case of disaster, how the single coverage ED physician can manage in the first 30 minutes. Um, you know, a lot of these disaster type topics, how do we translate your experiences there into mass cal type 
uh, situations. And that's a tremendously difficult question to answer, and that's one of the things that I'm going to talk about because right now I staff a critical access hospital that is 200 miles from my nearest level one trauma center. Mm -hmm. That disaster is a very different place than my mass casualties that I worked when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan because I was at that time in the most capable trauma hospital on the planet, the busiest and most capable trauma bay in the world. Those resources were very different than what I have to bring to bear on a daily basis in my emergency room right now. And certainly as in my role as a, in the National Guard as a disaster responder, I have to be able to change my approach and change what I bring to the fight depending on what is already there. And that depends on what type of patients are coming in. So an active shooter incident is going to have a lot different needs than a chlorine gas release. And it's variable. So what I talk about in my, in my lecture is a framework of how do you think about what's coming in your door and what resources do you have to bear on that? And then once you've decided what do you have available, how do you maximize those resources and how do you communicate what you need? And then probably the hardest part is after you know what you have coming, you know what you have available, when we get to that very difficult part of triage, when we talk about are you likely to survive with the resources that are available, how do you make that decision that the answer is sometimes no? And that is tremendously difficult. And that's the challenge is, you know, when you, we talk about establishing a disaster framework, your, your risks are different. So, you know, mine in Lexington, Kentucky, I don't need a huge uh, plan for, for hurricanes but I do for tornadoes and I do for ice and I do for heat and I do for other types of situations like that. In one, the one you referenced just a moment ago, the MassCal Everyday Wartime Lessons for success, Successful Disaster Response. What are some of those really big kind of key nugget take-home points, you know, for the doc that's sitting out there, whether that doc is, you know, at, uh, you know, in, in a major urban area or out in the middle of nowhere? One of the reasons that I called my lecture that is we would have basically mini mass cals almost every day there because in a war, you get a lot of patients from a single incident. There will be a battle that goes on and you will get a huge amount of patients right away. And the unique piece of that is it allowed us to really hone our, our mass cal responses and look at what is really important to get patients through the emergency department quickly so that you could see the next ones coming in. Probably the most important thing that I like people to leave with is you need to know what your disaster plan is. If you haven't seen it and you don't know what your piece of that is, you need to look at it and find out how do you start your mass casualty? How do you get the resources that you need? What, what do they think is actually going to happen during this? Because right now I just moved to a new hospital about a year ago. It took them nine months to actually be able to give me the mass cal plan, mm -hmm. which was a little bit concerning for me. And my hospital actually isn't involved in the mass casualty plan of how do we distribute patients amongst other hospitals. And so right now what I'm doing is spending a lot of time looking at that and saying, we need to look at this again. And that's what I think every doc needs to do is look at where, what their mass cal plan is and then say, this doesn't make sense. This is where I'm seeing holes because we're the ones that understand when patients keep coming in and, and what exactly do we need available to do that. So looking at your mass casualty plan is absolutely essential so that you know what to do with it. Second, throughput is essential during mass casualty events. 
you and I both know that the back door of our emergency room is way more important than the front door. Mm -hmm. And if there are a lot of patients that continue to move out the back door, I can see a lot more coming in. And one of the ways that we were really successful in our mass casualty events was the patients that came through the immediate team and through our trauma bay got basic life-saving stabilization. You got a primary and a secondary survey, and then you went off to the ward for someone else to do a tertiary survey. And as soon as you had an injury that defined your priority, so if you were hemodynamically unstable, you went to the operating room. If you had a penetrating torso injury, but you were hemodynamically stable, you went to the CAT scanner. If you had anything but one of those, if you had a massive head injury, that would usually go to the operating room with my neurosurgeon, but not very many places have a neurosurgeon on call available in your trauma bay. Mm -hmm. So that was a very specialized thing that we were able to do there. Anything outside of those three specific areas, you went to the ward for someone else to figure it out. We didn't x-ray extremities. We didn't do any of those things. One of the stories that I like to t tell during that lecture is a story of one of the mass cows that I had when I was in Afghanistan. We had a mass casualty that uh, occurred when the Taliban attacked a contractor compound and they drove a basically a truck full of uh, explosives into the gate. It detonated, and then they attacked with small arms fire. We took 15 critical patients through, the, through our trauma bay in about an hour and a half and continued to do just that basic stabilization and off to the ward to wait. Once, the, once all of our immediate patients were through, I went over to the ward to help sort through the tertiary surveys, and I found this gentleman over there. He was in his 50s, and I said, so you know, what happened? What, what's hurting? And he said, well, my knee hurts. And I said, okay, well, did you get shot in the knee? You know, what, what happened? How did you hurt your knee during this explosion? And he said, well, I have arthritis. This poor gentleman had been in the battalion aid station trying to get naproxen for his chronic knee pain from his arthritis when the IED went off. He was 250 yards away from where this happened. Battalion aid station became the casualty collection point and he got rolled up in the mass cow response. So he got C-collared, backboarded, thrown on a helo, throw, flown to us, trauma bay, two IVs, naked, rolled, rectal, everything. And he never said a word until he gets over to the ward. And I'm asking him, and I said, why did you let us do all of that to you? And he said, well, because you seemed like you knew what you were doing and I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> And I, did he get his naproxen? He did get his naproxen from us eventually, but the system worked. We identified that he didn't have a life-threatening process, and it was found in the tertiary survey. So that ability to move patients very, very quickly through looking for life threats, and as soon as we don't find one, somebody else is going to look at that again, works incredibly well in a mass casualty. But it depends on having a team at the far end that's able to do those, those tertiary surveys and is expecting not stable patients, but stabilized patients. And so it's a paradigm shift in how you think about it. The third most important thing that I always stress is communications. Your communications will go down almost immediately. We love our cell phones, but they're gonna be completely overwhelmed. And so having backups for your communication is really important. The doctors that were staffing the emergency room at Fort Hood tell about um, the, the gentleman who ended up being the immediate team chief, his name's Dr. Beckwith, he actually tapped an intern who became his runner because their, their phone systems were completely overwhelmed. And so he just had one person 
that he would say, I need you to go take a message to this. That's thinking outside the box, but it's absolutely essential in a mass casualty event. Documentation is always a problem. It needs to be paper-based because I have yet to see a computer EMR that is fast enough to respond to this. Mm If you don't have two patient identifiers, you can't even get a computer system to accept that. And if you have a mass casualty event, most of the time they're not bringing ladies' purses with them. And that's where my ID is. So you can't identify people and you need to have that ability to be very flexible. And that's actually how we do it. Even when we know who's coming in, you still get a trauma name, you still get everything worked on paper that then uploads into a system afterwards. And when all of that finally goes bad, we write on you with a Sharpie. A lot of my patients came in with a tourniquet in place and the time written on their arm when we placed it. They would come from the forward surgical teams with an open belly, so that's part of that damage control resuscitation. They would leave them open, they would pack them off, and they'd put a big tegaderm right across their abdomen, and they would write three lap pads in place because that's how we communicated because we knew we wouldn't lose the Sharpie on their skin. I've actually heard that. I have a... uh... A friend of mine was a cardiothoracic surgeon who was doing those surgeries. Mm-hmm. And, he, and so that's, that was our best way is you had the tape and we would just write like a brief yeah. little thing of, of the status of everything on the patient. Because you can't lose it because it's a giant wad of tape on, on the person's chest or belly or wherever it may be um, as they're transported. And that is key that you don't, you, you don't stay in play a lot, um, you know, to seal a... EMS term there. Um, a lot of things are moving, con- that continually moving forward. You know, knowing, uh, assessing your potential risks, what are the things you're going to see so you kind of focus on some uh, higher base stuff, understanding your resources, availability, and then figuring out how those are going to fail in order to have a secondary plan. And then, as you mentioned, the communication uh, being huge, uh, huge as well. Um, and it seems like I've been I'm looking through the schedule here and I'm finding different talk. I don't know. You, you take somebody off getting like 50 talks in here about <laughs> mass casualty and, and disaster, disaster preparedness and response. Um, and that one of them, and kind of last thing I want to hit on, w- one of your talks is that rural kind of community single coverage physicians. What are the special considerations for their and that person who may be out in the rural and all of a sudden a bus or airplane or something goes down and you've got 20, 30 people about to come your way? I think probably the most important thing that, that we need to think, there's two important things that I really talk about with the rural disaster response. Number one, I want you to picture what your emergency room looks like right now, what your mm-hmm. staffing looks like. How many docs do you have? How many extenders? How many nurses? That is your immediate team for the first two hours of your disaster because it's gonna take that long to mobilize your resources, call for help, get other docs coming, because you know when you get the call and you're at home, well, you gotta shower, you gotta stop what you're doing, you gotta get into your car and drive there, and that's assuming that you can actually get there. So if it's a natural disaster or even a big enough man-made disaster, you often can't even get to where you need to go because the roads are shut down. Mm -hmm. So for two hours minimum, Who is sitting in your emergency room right now is your immediate team. And so you need to think about how do I maximize those people to be as efficient as you can. The way that you do that is you make sure that everybody works at the top of their license. As a doctor, that means you need to be doing procedures and making high-level medical decisions. 
communication we talked about is really important. You need to give that phone to somebody else who stands right by your side and you say, I need you to call this person and make this happen so that you're not standing there on the phone because mm -hmm. you can't actually resuscitate somebody as you're trying to have that conversation. My disaster team, when I work with the National Guard, all of my medics are trained to get somebody onto my gurney, stripped, IV, monitor, and do a primary and secondary survey. That's not hard information. To, you know, those aren't hard skills to teach someone. And by doing that, I can stand in the middle of my resuscitation tent and watch that happen to six or seven patients at a time as that's happening. And my medics know to say, hey, doc, this guy's airway, this guy's not protecting his airway. And so thinking about not just you as a doc, but your nurses, your medics, whoever else you have there, everyone needs to be working at the top of their license and doing the things that only they can do. And that's how you maximize each and every person that you have. Fantastic conversation. So. Dr. Tori McGowan and uh, incredible lessons, wartime lessons, military lessons, and how we translate those into emergency medicine in our daily lives here uh, stateside. If people have any questions, comments, thoughts, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, I am available on Twitter at ER Disaster Doc. That's not because I am a disaster, but sometimes I go to them. Um, I'm also, uh, I have a website that's uh, erdisasterdoc.com that I have a lot of my handouts available that I talk about in my lectures. And I'm happy to answer any questions for anybody. Fantastic. As for me, so you, meant, you heard that at erdisasterdoc uh, on Twitter. I've got it pulled up right now we're going to make sure we got you on that follow as uh and uh, so communicate this is important information being prepared is the key as we've had a couple of conversations on disaster medicine here uh today uh on the asap frontline you know that the key is the preparation before we don't create plans we don't create preparedness as things are happening um, that is when you have to respond and, and react and, and adapt you know the plan needs to already be in place so um Making sure you're getting that done. Search out the information, assess your local needs, threats, um, and resources, and have at least that foundation um, and that structure in place to where you can react uh, when a mass casualty event happens in your area. As for me, you can contact me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, at everydaymed on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. <laughs>